Hello and welcome to Stump Death in Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary. And several years ago, back in 2012, I wrote a two-part article, two-part piece for The Stepping Stone on leadership classics, really classic works. And I'm going to cut over to that uh, reading from those two articles, and then I will come back. I previously assessed an early edition of Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive. Although a half century old, it has already proven lasting value. If new editions of a business book are being produced, now in ebook format, it obviously has staying power over many other works that are on the bestseller lists one week and then remaindered the next month. If a book has proven its worth by holding readers' attention for decades, how about works that have held sway for millennia? I speak, of course, of the classics, and I'm referring to works from particular cultures and time periods, specifically Greco-Roman literature spanning time from about 800 BC to 400 AD. The time period is fairly long, but the most notable works were not distributed evenly in time. For, an ex for example, an extremely fertile period for literary works came from the 5th century BC in Athens, which saw the likes of Pericles, Herodotus, Thucydides, Aeschylus, and Socrates. Not that Socrates wrote anything. This century was bracketed by the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars, which first saw the Athenian rise to power and just as quickly its collapse. Similarly, during the reign of Augustus, the first of the Roman emperors, there was a flowering of Roman literature. Howdy! One may wonder what the great works of literature from these time periods have to do with business, as many are focused on subjects such as war. But consider how Sun Tzu's The Art of War has been adapted to issues regarding business and management, strategy, and tactics. Similarly, many of the great works coming from these times and places focused on leadership, what makes for great leaders, and what explains leadership failures. I have picked three great works from this period to cover. To be sure, none of these are explicitly laid out similarly to Machiavelli's The Prince or Sun Tzu's work. It does require some reflection to derive any kind of general principles from these works. Most of the time, the actions of the particular leaders are being profiled or the actions they're taking are put within the larger context of the situations in which they find themselves. Most of the time, we are given contrasting visions of leadership within the same work, such as the characterizations of Alcibiades and Nicias in Thucydides' account of the Sicilian invasion by Athens. We are to come to our own conclusions on these men, given the actual results of their particular decisions. Why the classics? As with the long-lasting Drucker books, these works have obviously proved their worth throughout the ages. While many great works perished in the burning of the library at Alexandria, in addition to the general ravages of time on papyrus, those found the most valuable were the most widely and frequently copied, that which was uninteresting, uninstructive, useless, or dated, disappeared over the centuries, helping to keep such persiflage off reading lists. 
However, there's more than just high quality that makes them valuable for studies of leadership. Two aspects jump out. One, we know how things resolved, mostly. One of the issues with books like Good to Great and Built to Last is that companies are being captured in media res, which means in the middle of things. We may know the beginning and the progression of the story of these companies, but we don't know the conclusions. Some of the findings being drawn from these stories may simply be the pinnacle for these companies before their falls. As Herodotus put words in the mouth of the famous Athenian Solon, count no man happy until he is dead. Likewise, count no company successful until you have seen it run its course. We have seen fairly venerable companies collapse overnight due to fatal decisions. With the leaders and societies being described in these classics, we know they are long gone. To be sure, they influenced many later societies, but neither Imperial Rome nor Hellenistic Greece remains. Some treat events contemporaneous with the writers and some detail actions from centuries before. Either way, we can place these works in the larger timeline and see the extent to which achievement and failure is captured within them. Of course, there are often disputes about the historicity of these works and what really were driving causes. Why did the Western Roman Empire collapse anyway? Two, we're not emotionally invested. Well, I assume this is the case. If you're one to start bar brawls over whether Julius Caesar was maliciously assassinated or whether it was a necessary action on the part of Brutus and others, this section is not about you. The problem with many contemporary works on leadership, using modern examples, is that we may have various emotional responses to the people and companies involved. Yes, generally not to the level of bar brawls, but enough such that it clouds our abilities to assess the situation fairly. I may not be able to be fairly critical of Steve Jobs, as the halo effect from all the fun I've had with Apple products since 1987 has made me far from impartial. Likewise, I may not be able to appreciate the finer points of Bill Gates, as I recall the horror that was Vista. But I have no particular emotional tie to people such as Themistocles, Pericles, Xerxes, Leonidas, Vespasian, Augustus, and so forth. I can appreciate positive and negative accounts of each of these people. I am not wedded to a particular perspective with respect to them. So if I read an account that contradicts a prior view, I won't necessarily dismiss it out of hand because I want the result to be a certain way. The distance in time and geography helps, which makes it a more abstract exercise. Enough of why you should read these works. Let's consider what you should read. Leadership Profiles, Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. The easiest work to connect with leadership is Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Written in the late first century AD, Plutarch takes several famous Greeks and Romans and pairs them up. First writing a profile of each man and then writing an analysis making a head-to-head -head comparison of the two for most pairings. The pairings are not accidental. Plutarch attempts to pair each with someone of equal stature. For example, Alexander the Great is paired with Julius Caesar, both to represent great conquerors untimely cut down, in one case by disease and the other by assassins. The legendary founder of Rome, Romulus, is paired with the legendary founder of Athens, Theseus. Let me pick a particular pairing to give you a flavor of Plutarch's work. 
the Athenian leader Themistocles and the Roman five-time dictator Camillus. Both men ended exiles from their homelands, but for different reasons, and before exiled were extremely effective commanders of their cities. While Leonidas, the stalwart Spartan king who held the pass at Thermopylae, is the favorite with respect to Greek leaders of the Persian Wars, and most recently of the movie 300, let us remember that he died in his efforts, valiantly, to be sure, in holding off the Persians as others prepared to deal with them, but ultimately Leonidas and his followers did not survive. They were not the ones who effectively ended the Persian threat against the Greek mainland. That was for the far-seeing Themistocles, who also always made sure to take care that he was protected in the event of failure. First, there was the stroke of luck in a major silver strike for Athens. But more than that, rather than plowing that money into public buildings or a windfall for the citizenry, Themistocles convinced the citizens of Athens that money should be spent on building up a navy. This navy was crucial in the actual defeat of the Persians. One of Themistocles' main issues in his piece of the Persian Wars, especially after Leonidas' defeat and the destruction of Athens by the Persians soon after, was keeping the ships of other Greek city-states with the Athenian fleet at Salamis. He used every persuasive tool in his kit, including outright bribery, to keep everyone from leaving uh, Attic Greece to the Persians and hiding out in the Peloponnese. He threatened that the Athenians themselves would take their massive fleet with them to start a new Athens somewhere else on the Mediterranean. He held the Greek forces together for a time, but he knew that the various admirals were restive and could bolt at any moment. He came up with a ruse, sending one of his most trustworthy servants to Xerxes. He sent the message to the Persian potentate that the Greeks were readying to flee and that Xerxes should take advantage of the weakness by bottling up the Greeks and barring their escape. Love and kisses, Themistocles. This ruse prevented the retreat of the allies, but also allowed Themistocles to take advantage of the geography. The Greek ships backed up, feigning retreat from the advancing Persian fleet, as a large crescent started to envelop the Persian forces clustered in the middle. As the Greek ships almost backed up to the surrounding shore, the signal to attack went up. Due to the narrowness of the straits leading out to the open sea, the Persians couldn't flee effectively and had their own ships colliding with each other. There was an absolute rout of the Persians that day. Themistocles wanted to chase the Persians and utterly destroy them, but even in war, the Athenians were democratic and he was overruled. The other Greek leaders had no interest in bottling up Persians in the Greeks' backyard. They were very happy to see Xerxes and his crew hightail it back to Persia. Themistocles, realizing an opportunity to make friends where others would not, sent another letter to Xerxes, this time claiming that he was the one to convince the Greeks to let the Persians go back home. Don't forget who your friend is, smooches, Themistocles. This would come in awfully handy years later, when Themistocles himself was booted from Athens with that peculiar Athenian institution of ostracism. Ostracism was a substantive process whereby those a bit too big for their britches would be officially exiled from the city for 10 years as a result of popular vote. Due to the hidey hole he had built himself by pretending to be Xerxes' best pal, Themistocles ended his days as a local leader in the Persian Empire himself. 
he wouldn't be the only Athenian who ended up working for the Persians due to exile. Themistocles' adventures are detailed not only in Plutarch, some 600 years after the fact, but also Herodotus, who flourished within decades of the events described. While obscure from the distance of millennia later, it seems that Themistocles got himself the reputation of being extremely fond of self-dealing and abusing the power he achieved. Camillus, the Roman dictator paired with Themistocles in Plutarch's account, was much less wily. Of course, this is the characterization that comes to us from Plutarch. Part of Plutarch's program is to show how crafty those sneaky Greeks were and how the Romans improved on that model. However, Plutarch shows that Camillus, like Themistocles, overreached his particular triumphs. A quick digression on the Roman office of dictator. During the time of the Roman Republic, during which Camillus lived, dictators would occasionally be elected for the limited period of up to six months and for a particular purpose, almost always involving a war. Camillus was a particularly successful general, and his dictatorships were granted for concluding particular military actions. However, Camillus also overreached his power, similar to Themistocles, and ultimately was exiled from Rome. This is one of the very few pairings for which we don't have Plutarch's commentary of a head-to-head -head comparison, but the connection is clear. The lesson Plutarch brings with these two is that achievement in one area, war, does not mean one can overreach one's position elsewhere. Here, the city at peace. People's patience will be stretched only so far, and even powerful leaders can find themselves toppled when they test the limits of their popularity. A similar work is Twelve Caesars by Suetonius, Far less high-minded than Plutarch, Suetonius does a tabloid review of Julius Caesar and the first 11 emperors of Rome, including those four who were emperor within the same year. The gossip passed on by Suetonius became the foundation for Robert Graves' novel I, Claudius, and Claudius the God, but it also details the leadership strengths and weaknesses of each man in turn. Excellent Tales Accessible to All for all the reasons I detail above, close reading of these works are likely to be both edifying and entertaining. All are available for free in ebook format via Amazon's Kindle Store, the Gutenberg Project, and MIT's Internet Classics Archive, to name a few free sources. Translations appropriate for our current English usage are coming out all the time. With resources such as Wikipedia, one can look up unfamiliar names while reading and get broader context. Indeed, many e-readers have built-in lookup functions for the very purpose. There are free audiobook editions at sites such as www.librivox.org. If anything, we suffer from a surfeit of information due to its sheer cheapness. We merely have to pay for it in time. So if you're going to spend some of your precious time, why not spend it on some of the best? Continuing on in part two of Leadership Books, the Classics. History, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. While Plutarch lived well after the people he profiled, many by centuries, and some such as Romulus or Theseus, may never have existed, Thucydides lived through the events he detailed in his history of the Peloponnesian War. This war 
which occurred off and on over a few decades, was between Sparta and Athens. Thucydides made a detailed chronological account and had a hand in some events himself. Interestingly, while he had been an Athenian general at one point, he also had a period of exile due to failure and spent time talking with the other side of the war as well. There are several famous incidents and people covered by Thucydides in his accounts, but I will concentrate on one specific incident, the Sicilian invasion, which signaled the beginning of the end for Athens. After the Athenian victory against the Persians, as noted in the prior article, they consolidated and expanded their power among various smaller, weaker Greek city-states. Sparta did likewise, but Sparta was less expansionist than Athens. In Thucydides' telling, war between Sparta and Athens was inevitable. While Thucydides does detail military action, he spends most of his time relating arguments between various sides in public assemblies, and not only in Athens. A theme comes up frequently stated by particular representatives of Athens. We are powerful, and we're going to use that power to benefit ourselves. All entities operate in their self-interest. Do not talk to us of justice. Might doesn't make right, but it does make for results. Returning to the Sicilian invasion, this seems a side excursion for the Athenians. This occurred during a negotiated peace with Sparta, so it wasn't officially a part of the war with Sparta. However, the great city of Syracuse on Sicily was an ally of Sparta, and when Athens invaded, Sparta responded. Two particular leaders are profiled with respect to this excursion, Alcibiades and Nicias. Both of them were Athenian generals, at least at first. Alcibiades argued for invasion. Nicias argued against and kept shooting himself in the foot with regards to the invasion. After arguing that such an invasion would be pointless and that they had defense issues at home, Nicias pointed out they would need to send lots and lots of men and ships and spend lots and lots of money to be successful. Great, said the Athenian citizenry. Here's some money. Let's go. The expedition was launched with Nicias and Alcibiades sharing command. Read Thucydides for the complicated story of why Alcibiades had to defect to the Spartan side soon after launch. The result, the man who hated the expedition had to lead it, and the one who wanted it went to the other side and started giving advice, extremely effective advice. Alcibiades is notorious for lots of reasons, some of which were detailed in Thucydides and some in Plutarch. None denied that he gave excellent military advice, and those who did not listen to him did so to their detriment. Sure, don't trust the guy with your wife, but he knew what he was talking about in winning battles. Alcibiades had a very simple piece of advice to the Spartans with respect to backing the Syracusans against the Athenians send a Spartan general. They did, and the Syracusans and that general prevailed. Nicias ended up being executed for his failure, as the Athenians were completely routed. Thucydides ominously did not finish his work. 
it cuts off mid-sentence. But the upshot is the Athenians ultimately lost the war. Throughout the work, the Athenians argued real politique and used their massive power to that end, crushing all who stood in their way. They killed all the men, sold the women and children into slavery in the cities they defeated. They were very lucky. The Spartans did not behave the same way when they themselves were subjugated. The Spartans would not destroy those who protected the Greeks against the Persians, but they also would not allow them to be militarily powerful any longer. Thucydides talks about the uses of power and the effectiveness of power surgically applied, as with the solitary Spartan general sent to Syracuse. While he doesn't reach a conclusion, knowing the ultimate result, we see the limits of the use of power, as with the leaders paired in Plutarch. Similar work, The Histories by Herodotus. Thucydides makes veiled barbs at Herodotus in his own work for some of the shortcomings that led later people to label Herodotus the father of lies, as opposed to his other well-known subriquet, the father of history. While Thucydides focused on the Peloponnesian War that ended the 5th century BC, Herodotus mainly focuses on the Persian Wars that began it. Famous ancient leaders, not only Greek, are profiled. Herodotus takes the view that what comes up must come down, particularly in the fortunes of men. Epic, the Iliad by Homer. While the prior categories of work at least purport to be historical, the rough edges may have been smoothed and a lot of stories improved, in the category of epic, the literal truth is not the point. The Iliad, one of the most renowned of epics of history, and the Vade Mecum of Alexander the Great, has long been seen as commentary on the glory, or lack thereof, of war. Though in the very first line, we hear the poem is to be centered on the wrath of Achilles. There are two very different visions of leadership presented to us. No, Achilles is not one of these leaders. Indeed, for most of the epic, Achilles eschews his duties, and when he does finally spring into action, it's as a singular war machine. We do not see Achilles leading men. He is almost always acting on his own behalf. Rather, the leadership I speak of is of the opposing generals, Agamemnon and Hector. Agamemnon is shown as a poor leader, originally alienating his best fighter Achilles in an attempt to regain face after a direct rebuke by the gods. The action of the epic starts because Agamemnon has offended Apollo by not returning the daughter of one of the gods' priests. Achilles argues the girl must be returned, and when a god-sent plague forces Agamemnon's hand, he decides he will put Achilles in his place by taking away Achilles' own war prize, the woman Briseis. Keep in mind that Agamemnon is not Achilles' king. Indeed, the heroes of the Iliad are all leaders of their own cities, and Agamemnon is merely first among equal, equals. 
Egotism abounds among the Greek warriors, and Agamemnon's rank-pulling nearly ruins the Greeks' efforts at Troy. Achilles has a goddess as a mother, and thus can exact concrete revenge for his wounded pride. The result is that things go very badly indeed for the Greeks, as their best warrior had been unnecessarily insulted. How often do we see similar actions within corporations when various executives, who need to cooperate to be effective, decide to play status games of this sort? The particular situation that comes to mind is the Eisner-Katzenberg fight at Disney, which ended with cash for Katzenberg, as well as his own barb shot at Disney when he co-founded DreamWorks. Such incidents aren't isolated. Even beyond the initial event, we see Agamemnon relenting, sending three emissaries to Achilles to try to convince him to re-enter the fray. He uses Odysseus to bribe Achilles with material goods, and Odysseus uses additional cynicism to encourage Achilles to show up the rest of the force. There is Ajax, the second greatest warrior, who, past the events of the Iliad, has ego problems of his own. Ajax tries to tempt Achilles with visions of war glory. Finally, there is Phoenix, an old man and foster father to Achilles, to try to persuade via sentimentality. All three fail in persuasion. When Achilles returns to battle, Agamemnon has no hand in it. It is entirely due to the slaying of Achilles' bosom pal Patroclus by Hector, the Trojan prince. Throughout the Iliad, Agamemnon is seen mainly as an ineffective leader of men. In contrast, Hector, the crown prince of Troy and main war commander of Trojan troops, is shown as very effective in leading the Trojans. Hector is never shown to be whining, as Agamemnon does in the funeral games of Patroclus, Hector verbally slaps his brother Paris upside the head for not defending the city before Achilles re-enters on the Greek side and ultimately kills him. Hector is shown rallying the troops to push to the Greek ships to destroy them. The only real reason Hector fails ultimately is because the judgment of Zeus is against Troy. So in this final profile of leadership, we see that good leaders can fail and poor leaders prevail simply due to good fortune. The Greeks were never much for happy endings. Similar work. The Aeneid by Virgil. Best remembered of the Roman epic is the affair of Aeneas and Dido, the queen of Carthage. But she kills herself a third of the way into the work. Aeneas's adventures in Italy comprise most of the work. One sees Aeneas's careful decisions as a leader, in judging fairly amongst funeral games, a role Achilles played in the Iliad at Patroclus's funeral, as well as being effective in gathering allies once on Italian soil. Ultimately, too, Aeneas prevails due to the support of fate. Not quite the uplifting tale one might hope for. Excellent Tales Accessible to All As I mentioned in the first article, Close reading of these works are likely to be both edifying and entertaining. All are available for free in ebook format. 
via Amazon's Kindle Store, The Gutenberg Project, and MIT's Internet Classics Archive, to name a few free sources. There are also free audiobook editions at sites such as www.librivox.org. If you're going to spend some of your precious time reading, why not spend it on some of the best? Okay, so were you convinced that you should read these works? To be sure, I tried to connect these works to some practical, <laughs> you know, to think about connecting them to the corporate world. And that is one way. That is one element of where leadership resides. And of course, it also resides in the political world and other spheres within one's life, I am sure. I'm just going to tell you right now, I had an ulterior motive for promoting these works. It's because I like them and I would love to discuss them with other people. These are not obscure works, by the way. <laughs> I do actually love Suetonius's Twelve Caesars, though a lot of it is gossip. Um, and I don't know how much of them to believe. I just finished, not too long ago, both I, Claudius, and Claudius the God, and having read what uh, I think it's Robert Graves had written, he's like, I didn't just base it on Suetonius, I used these other sources, and having read the books and not just watched the miniseries, I saw in the details like, oh yes, there is all this stuff that is beyond Suetonius and Tacitus and these other sources. Though, yes, a lot of it is based on gossip, um, obviously from senatorial sources who obviously wanted to, you know, do some a little bit of character assassination for the Julio-Claudians, as they call them. You know, that's neither here nor there. If you have, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that is okay. Um, that's not the important part because some of these are partly fictional, obviously. However, I actually have opinions. I don't think these are necessarily fully fictional, like the Iliad. Yes, you know, it's not obviously literally true. However, I do believe Agamemnon was a real person. I do believe Odysseus actually was a real person. There are details that make me think, yeah, um, some of the stupid stuff, no, not the Cyclops, but some of the stuff about the character of Odysseus makes me think he was a real person, for instance. And yeah, I'd Someone buy me some drinks and I'll spend some, <laughs> spend my stories on that one. Um, and I find Odysseus far more interesting than Aeneas to talk about, for instance. But I have been trying to work on a piece with regards to uh, Dante and Dante's Commedia. And everybody forgets there's the Inferno Purgatorio and Paradiso and trying to connect that to a business, <laughs> a business format. Okay, uh, some of this is me trying to push my luck and seeing what I can get away with in writing for actuarial publications. I will just admit it. 
Um, I have been able to write about Sumo. I have been able to write about Julia Child. I have been able to write about Ben Franklin and borrowing a book. Um, I will, I will try to write about anything and see what I can get away with just to see if anyone will, uh, take me up on this. But all of these are things I obviously love and I am really into. I am not just making stuff up. These are things I have read and things that I love. They are beautiful. They are true to a certain sense. Um, but I also believe there is some truth there and there is a reason to read them. The ones I selected, I selected them because I believe there are some core ideas there that are useful to read about. Not every detail in the epics and the old scrolls of papyrus uh, are necessarily useful. There is a reason, by the way, that these works have lasted the centuries and it's not just because teachers want to torture students. Indeed, you know that schools are not necessarily teaching these texts anymore. Um, to a certain extent, they are difficult. There are very good translations. What is great is every generation comes up with new translations for these. And to a, a large extent, um, I mean, I use the Iliad and not the Odyssey. I love the Odyssey. If I could have figured out how to work the Odyssey in, I would have. But the Iliad is more obviously about failure of leadership with regards to Agamemnon versus Hector. And it is interesting. It's a Greek and he makes Hector look really good. And Agamemnon looks awful in the Iliad. Um, Achilles actually does... You know, having learned more about the culture, uh, Achilles does look more in the right, but Agamemnon, from whatever, you know, from a modern point of view and from the ancient point of view, looks horrible. And several of the other Greek kings, and Odysseus was a king, Achilles was a king, they were all, most of the main characters are kings of their particular cities. I mean, we call them kings, but they were main leaders and look at how they behave and whether they are strong or weak uh it it is obvious that agamemnon is there because he had made a promise and he is from basically the richest city and that is why he is in the prominent role not because he's particularly good as a leader there is a reason he's murdered when he gets back to Greece. Huh. Anyway, um, <laughs> and that one is not simply bad luck. Um, he brought a lot of his bad luck upon himself. That's Agamemnon. Um, Hector did not deserve what he got. But, you know, when the gods are against you, sometimes bad things happen. And that is actually something people need to keep in mind. There's only so much you can control. But anyway, <laughs> that's the happy thought at the end of this one. But more to the point, uh, going back to great works, whether it is from 
2,500 years ago or 50 years ago, these are good to know. I Now, there may be classics being written right now. It is difficult to tell. Um, I do have issues with a lot of business books, works, TED Talks, whatever, because a lot of times, I mean, I find a lot of these extremely boring, um, but that's because, you know, a lot of things can get produced and it's hard to tell many times what is going to be of lasting quality. That which has been copied over and over and over, and I don't think it's a bad thing that multiple versions of, say, Shakespeare or Dickens or Jane Austen or whatever compelling story it is that someone has taken an old story and has used modern characters uh, or place it in modern settings, different ethnicities, sexes, genders, whatever. I actually think that's a good thing. That tells you something is strong about that story. And you need to think about why certain stories have lasting power and other things do not work. And it's not just about the stories. Certain things have truth in them and other things perhaps do not. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. It's a little different this time. I'll talk to you another time. Oh,